I'm Kate Mara, and you're listening to the Audible Original American Football, presented by Michael Strahan and narrated by me. Sure, we all have our favorite teams and chase the excitement all season, but just how did football get its start, then explode in popularity? I'm taking you through the fast-paced tale of American football, its central figures, and how, rife with class conflict, football transitions from an amateur sport to one of the most prolific and valuable leagues in the world. The dramatic history is bloodier, dirtier, and more tumultuous than you know. Listen to American football and other great storytelling at audible.com or wherever you get your podcasts. American Football is an Audible original produced by The History Channel, Misher Films, and Smack Entertainment. In any city with an NFL team, it's not uncommon to see billboards featuring the faces and likenesses of their most famous players. If you're in Kansas City driving down I-435, you're likely to find starting quarterback for the Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes. In Cincinnati, it wouldn't be out of place to find a picture of Joe Burrow plastered anywhere downtown near the Skyline Chili Restaurant on Vine. There was even a time during my career when you could walk around Times Square and see my handsome mug on a building or two. Marquee players, that's what sells the game. Gets people to tune in, buy the jerseys, and be inspired. During pro football's infancy, one of its earliest challenges was getting people to identify with the game, to not only enjoy it, but be moved by it. They didn't need something, they needed someone. They would find that someone in a man born and raised far away from football's elitist Ivy League roots, who was not only the greatest football player of his day, but the greatest athlete in the world. I'm Michael Strahan, and this is American Football Chapter 2, Path Lit by Great Flash of Lightning. Welcome to Stockholm, Sweden, and the 1912 Olympic Games, just the fourth Olympics of the modern era. I'm your host, Jim Lampley, and with me in the stadium is Otto Bolden. These games feature 2,400 competitors from 28 countries competing in 102 events, including two brand new track and field events, the pentathlon and the decathlon. These competitions promise to determine the best all-around athlete at these games. Representing Team USA in both the pentathlon and decathlon was a young member of the Sac and Fox Nation. Brought up on a reservation in rural Oklahoma, his name was Watho Huck, but we knew him as Jim Thorpe, All-American. Thorpe was pegged as an underdog behind favorites from Sweden and England. But that label quickly vanished when he stunned the competition and won four of the five individual pentathlon events outright, taking an early gold in the new event. Still, it was his performance in the decathlon, a contest so grueling, only 12 of 29 starters competed in all 10 events, that captured the world's attention. The near-capacity crowd of 13,000 can't wait to see if Jim Thorpe can close out his quest for Olympic immortality with a final victory here. The 12 remaining runners are at the line, and there's the gun. 
A week earlier in the pentathlon's 1,500-meter race, Thorpe lay back before surging at the end to claim a stunning five-second win. But this time, in the final event of the decathlon, his main competitors, the Swedish track stars, were committed to avoiding the same fate. They would not be suckered by the American in the final stretch. But they didn't need to be. The bell for the final lap has sounded, and Thorpe has yet again found another gear. It's incredible. The Swedes desperately trying to make contact with the powerful American, but he has had the lead of this race since the start. They don't have an answer. The is on his feet, shouting itself mad. The only question now is can he hold it through the tape? 50 meters, 40 meters. It's a mad dash. Can he do it? He's oh my, do it. the time, 440.1. Listen to that crowd. Two seconds ahead of the Swedes, four seconds faster than he ran last week, and almost as fast as the fastest 1,500-meter runners in the world. Jim Thorpe is the toast of the 1912 Olympic Games and of the world. Jim didn't just win the decathlon. He destroyed it finishing an astounding 688 points ahead of his nearest competitor. Here's Billy Mills, Native American and gold medal winner of the 10,000 meters in the 1964 Olympics. My early learnings about Jim Thorpe still influence me today. Uh, he was never a hero of mine. He was much greater. He was an Olympic god. <laughs> he represented his country proudly, even though it denied him citizenship. Indigenous people could not become citizens until 1924. And very few did, because to become a U.S. citizen, you had to give up your language. You had to give up the virtues and the values. You had to give up your culture, your traditions, the spirituality. Thorpe accepted his gold medals, the last ones to be made of pure gold, from Sweden's King Gustav V, who proclaimed, You, sir, are the most wonderful athlete in the world. Jim made the modern Olympics a success almost single-handedly. He returned to a massive parade in New York City with hundreds of thousands lining the streets. Jim was placed out front to lead the procession, undisputed hero of the games. As former NFL quarterback Eli Manning can attest, when you win a championship and you're you know, in a parade down the canyon of heroes and there's three million people deep you know, all around you, you're thinking, wow, this is pretty awesome. Thorpe was a star now, internationally known, and he was flooded with offers by entrepreneurs looking to cash in on his celebrity. Baseball teams, boxing and wrestling promoters, even a hustler looking to race him against a horse. One place Jim was not looking to capitalize on his success, pro football. While he loved the sport and played it back at school, Professional football barely had a pulse after the Canton-Maslin scandal of 1906. The one man keeping it alive was Peggy Parrott, who was also, if you'll remember, an integral part of the Maslin team that went down in flames. Peggy shrewdly moved on to build a new team in the middle of Nowheresville, Ohio. He was an operator and showman on the field and off, building and discarding teams to create just enough competition to capture fan interest and sell tickets. Still, for Jim, there was more money in racing a horse than playing football with Peggy. Overwhelmed by the decision he had to make about his professional future, Thorpe turned to his old coach at Carlisle, 
the vocational school for Native Americans he had been going to since he was 16. There, Glenn Scobie Warner, better known as Pop, who you may recognize from the many youth football leagues that bear his name, urged Jim to return for his senior year. While there were riches on the table, there was a more personal, immediate piece of business for Jim in playing one more season of college football. Vengeance. Born a fraternal twin on May 22, 1887 in Oklahoma, Jim Thorpe was a direct descendant of Black Hawk, the prominent Sac and Fox tribe warrior. Here's David Moranis, author and associate editor at the Washington Post. His given name was Wathohawk, and the most poetic translation of that is the title of my book, Path Lit by Lightning. Um, the night that he and Charlie were born, there was a thunderstorm, and lightning was illuminating the river and the path near their, outside their cabin. So that's where he got that name. He was a child of mixed-race parents. When Jim was just three years old, his tough nut father taught him to swim by throwing Jim into the deep rushing current of the North Canadian River and walking away. Jim learned quickly. His dad had a reputation um, for being a pretty rough man. He wasn't adverse to fighting. That's Justin Lenhart, curator for the Jim Thorpe Museum. The Thorpes lived in Keokuk Falls, Oklahoma, surrounded on all sides by Native American reservations, where the U.S. government forced indigenous peoples to live after taking their land and giving it to white settlers. From an early age, Jim could watch someone perform a task once, then pull it off effortlessly himself. Jim and his twin brother Charlie were inseparable, the yin to each other's yang. Charlie was as bookish and intellectual as Jim was physical and mischievous. To get an education, the twins were sent to a Sac and Fox agency school where, despite the name, students were prohibited from expressing their native culture and ceremonies. My tribe, the Lakota, were the first tribe taken. The long hair, the braid, is spiritual sacredness to us. So our leaders said, please just don't cut their hair. And by the time the wagons are going off of the campus, you hear the young boys screaming as they're braids were being cut off. Many teachers considered Jim too wild and unreformable, but his brother enjoyed the school's studiousness. Only Charlie's presence kept Jim in attendance. But like so many Native American schools, it proved more successful at passing on disease than it did education. In 1897, Charlie caught pneumonia and died. David Moranis. His twin brother, Charlie, sadly died when they were nine years old, a trauma that affected, I would say, Jim Thorpe for the rest of his life. Jim was heartbroken and mourned for months, living off the land in the woods. Jim often said that the reason he became so strong was that when his brother died, Jim got all his strength. In February 1904, when he was only 16, Jim was sent to attend the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania, where his athletic talents could be nurtured. Little did Jim know that his school was located not far from the birthplace of professional football, just 200 miles from where Pudge Heffelfinger, you can't make these names up, 
became the first player to get paid as a ringer for the Allegheny Athletic Association in 1892. Jim was anxious about moving 1,200 miles away from his family. Here's David Moranis. The Carlisle Indian Industrial School was the flagship Indian boarding school run by the U.S. government. It was founded in 1879, only three years after the Battle of the Little Bighorn. The founder, Richard Henry Pratt, his motto was, kill the Indian, save the man. In other words, after the pure genocide of the middle of the 19th century, he thought the only way for Native Americans, for indigenous people to survive was to fully acculturate and assimilate them into white society. There's a cemetery there that has over 180 tombstones of young Indian children who died while they were at school. But sports again proved Jim Thorpe's salvation. The sort of eureka moment came when he was working on the farm at the school, walked by the track, saw the high jump bar at about six feet. None of the jumpers could clear it. And Jim Thorpe, in his overalls, cleared the bar. He had already discovered baseball and was a rising star on the track team. When track season ended, Jim saw a varsity football team practice and wanted in on that, too. Warner said no way. Thorpe was too scrawny for football. Jim, however, wouldn't leave the field. Okay, said Warner. You can help with tackling practice. Two players were lined up every five yards, and Jim had to run through the gauntlet starting at one end zone. Warner gave him the signal, and Jim ran forward, juking and sliding, stiff-arming and high-stepping right through the entire team. Not one player managed to bring him down. Warner, irked at being shown up, told Jim to run it again. He did making it through the entire Carlisle varsity football team without going down. Flipping the ball back to Warner, Thorpe said, nobody's going to tackle Jim. I try to draw in comparisons. Say you're in the bathtub and you're in there with the soap, okay? This is Hall of Fame strong safety Leroy Butler describing what it's like to stop a guy like Thorpe. You got it. And it's going again. You can see this guy, but as soon as you close your eyes to tackle him, he's gone 70 yards, and you're on Sports Center. Over the next few years, Jim built a reputation in track, baseball, and especially football. Noted for his speed and vicious tackles, Jim often grabbed opposing players by their belts and lifted them off the ground, a wide grin on his face visible from the stands like Babe Ruth pointing at the fences and predicting where he'd hit his next dinger, Thorpe pointed at opposing players and then ran at them, daring them to stop him. Here's former NFL tight end Tony Gonzalez. The trash talk, some people actually need that. They don't play well unless, unless they're, t- and legends. I mean, I heard Larry Bird is one of the biggest trash talkers ever. Michael Jordan. I, I don't, for me, I like to be quiet and then go score on him. Here's former NFL quarterback Ben Roethlisberger. There's been a couple times that I've had some young guys, a rookie guy or a second-year guy, that would say some stuff that might be disrespectful. And after I'd been in the league for 14, 15 years, won a couple of Super Bowls, uh, I'd usually ask him to turn around so I could see his name because I didn't know who he was. Jim's natural aggressiveness and cocky play led Coach Warner to remark, he certainly is a wild Indian. Here's David Moranis. He emerged as 
the best player on the Carlisle football team, a brilliant left halfback and a defensive back. In that era, football players played the whole game. He was a great punter. Um, he could routinely punt at 70, 80 yards. And he was a field goal kicker and drop kicker. He could do literally anything on a football field. He was a, a beautiful athlete. He ran like a horse going downhill, but he also was deft and agile, fearless. He rarely got hurt, and when he did get hurt, he still played. He had an electricity to him that you see in great athletes. It's a little hard to describe, but when you see it, you just go, wow. His own coach promoted Jim to the press and drove the entire team hard. Fans from opposing teams regularly cheered for Jim in spite of themselves. Former safety Malcolm Jenkins knows this history. He's the greatest athlete to walk the planet. We know all about the LeBron James, the Serena Williams, the Tiger Woods, the Patrick Mahomes, the superstar athletes. I mean, this, is, this guy was doing it back in the 1920s. Uh, in every sport. It cannot be overstated how dominating a run Jim Thorpe had at the 1912 Olympics in Sweden. After that triumph, Jim had the world as his oyster. But first, Jim had to return to school and beat Army. Justin Lenhart once more. That was the famous game against uh, West Point. The media stories from that football game, of course, they took every trope that they could. And it was like the cavalry against the, the savages, you know. I mean, it was the American Indian Wars on the gridiron for that particular game. The Carlisle Indians game on November 9th, 1912, would be the ultimate grudge match. A game that would mean more to Jim and his teammates than any they'd played before. The game was the Carlisle Indians versus Army. The young Native American squad knew well what was at stake. The most recent conflicts between indigenous peoples and the U.S. military had taken place 22 years prior. Hardly the stuff of ancient history. As Billy Mills notes, Other countries today are studying the most devastating genocide on this planet occurred with the indigenous people in the Americas. Based on archaeological digs, 50 to 90 million indigenous people. At the end of the wars, 6 million survived. Army's team was packed with the country's future leaders, intent on proving their superiority and personal grit. The Army coach's favorite saying was, I want to see blood. Before the game, Pop Warner told his Carlisle players, Remember, these are the men whose fathers and grandfathers killed your fathers and grandfathers. He then laid down a challenge, saying, You are all Indians. Tonight, we'll see if you're warriors. Among Army's many standout players was 21-year-old halfback, future World War II general and president of the United States, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Determined to burnish his own star, Eisenhower and linebacker Charles Benedict vowed to knock Thorpe out of the game by hitting him as hard and early as possible. Here's announcer Gus Johnson. We're here at Army Field, a former fort high above the majestic Hudson River where Ulysses S. Grant, William Tecumseh Sherman, Robert E. Lee, and George Armstrong Custer, all veterans of the American Indian campaigns, hone their art of war. Gray clouds and wet temperatures in the low 30s have not dampened the spirit 
of a stirring military parade full of pomp and pageantry. Cadets marching with precision, their capes flowing in the wind, and with a cannon blast, it's time for our three o'clock start. Carlisle was in dark red jerseys, Army its traditional black and gold. Army's average weight was a good 25 pounds heavier than Carlisle's, and its average height a few inches taller. Thorpe bobbled to the opening kickoff before running it back to the 28. Carlisle sets up for its first play from scrimmage. But what's this? It's a new formation with a single back off to one side, two backfield runners behind the quarterback, and a shotgun snap. The ball goes to Thorpe. No, it goes to quarterback Gus Welch, who pitches to Arcasa for a runner on the right end. The Army players look badly confused on the play. The new formation allowed the ball to go to any of four players in the backfield the quarterback, or three other players. At first, Army had no idea who had the ball or where it was going. The team's straight-ahead power style was not built to counter Carlisle's run-and-gun attack. But early in the game, Eisenhower stayed true to his word. Thorpe has an opening, but Eisenhower and Benedict punish him with a viciously timed double hit that knocks the ball loose, recovered by Army. Thorpe is slow to get up, clutching his right shoulder. Pop Warner runs onto the field, but the ref is telling him to get his player off so the game can resume. If you left the field, you had to stay out for the rest of the quarter. Army's All-American captain, defensive lineman Leland DeVore, told the ref to give Thorpe all the time he needed, but what may have been a courtesy sounded to Thorpe like pity, and Thorpe refused to leave the game. A key Eisenhower block gave Army the first score and the cannons fired again as the Army fans erupted in cheers. Carlisle fought back with their own touchdown and made the extra point. Jim's team led Army 7-6. Then, late in the second... Army with a booming punt to Thorpe at midfield. Five Army defenders coming on hard. Thorpe views the ball cleanly. Somehow, zigzags through the pack. Cutting back and forth all the way down the field. Every cadet on the team has a shot at him, and everyone misses. Thorpe's in for a touchdown, and the all-Army crowd can't help but cheer their Native American opponent. But wait, there's a flag back near the catch, and they're waving off the touchdown. Sadly for Carlisle, the score At halftime, Ike and Benedict conspired again to hit Thorpe high and low at the same time, confident the best way to win was to have Thorpe watching from the sidelines. They hand it off to Thorpe, who barrels his way through the line. Eisenhower launches himself. Benedict goes for his knees. It's a crushing blow. I can hear it all the way up here in the stands. The crowd and players fall silent. After a tense moment, Thorpe got up and brushed himself off. The two young cadets were shocked, but remained confident they'd ruined Thorpe for the day. Then, on the next play... Welch hands the ball to Thorpe again, who runs up the same line. Eisenhower and Benedict leave their feet once more, but Thorpe somehow stops on a dime, and the two Army defenders crash into each other. Thorpe stands above the cadets, grinning like a Cheshire cat. The Army defenders are slow to get up. A dazed Eisenhower literally staggers off the Eisenhower feet. took a seat on the bench next to backup center and future general and U.S. war hero Omar Bradley. The two men would help win World War II three decades later. But today, they lost their battle to contain Thorpe and the Carlisle Indians. 
With a final score of Carlisle 27, Army 6, Eisenhower and Thorpe leave the field together, a new respect earned through an athletic stand-in for war. As Bill Cower, NFL head coach and CBS analyst, believes, The most important thing that you can do is stay focused and stay with a sense of purpose through the course of 60 minutes of football. And they've always said that it builds character. I said, no, really, it just reveals character. Hall of Famer Howie Long knows the feeling. You take yourself to a place physically and mentally that you didn't realize you could go to. It means everything about who you are and, and what you're about. That's, to me, is how the game reveals character. Jim's 200 yards rushing was but one of his contributions to the unlikely win. Here's Eisenhower in his own words. Except for Thorpe, they would have been an easy team to beat. Thorpe was almost the entire team. He can do everything and anybody else can do it, he can do it After the game, the New York Times reported that the cadets had been shown up like no West Point team in years. Jim returned to his last year at Carlisle with the world on a plate. His future couldn't be brighter. But on January 22, 1913, an article appeared in the Worcester Telegram that shocked the nation. It said that Thorpe had played pro baseball a few years earlier making him ineligible for the Olympics. The story was confirmed when Jim's picture was found in a local team's program guide. Here again is author David Moranis. Carlisle Indian athletes have been playing summer baseball for years before that. They called it the Pocahontas League because everybody was named John Smith. Dwight Eisenhower played summer baseball in the Kansas State League under the name Wilson. Athletes were doing it to save their amateur status. But Jim Thorpe played under the name Jim Thorpe. He never tried to hide it. In a panic, Jim turned to Warner, asking how getting paid to play baseball had anything to do with him running and jumping in track and field. Warner said not to worry. He'd try to smooth things over. Warner crafted a letter in Jim's name for Jim to sign, saying... He was just a Native American student who didn't know any better and begging the Olympic Committee's forgiveness. Warner's letter made clear that neither Warner nor anyone at Carlisle had any knowledge that Thorpe played pro ball. An unquestionable lie. Not to mention pure hypocrisy, given Warner had paid Jim to play football while still in school as recently as 1908. Football was an economic driver and PR tool for Carlisle, as it was for many schools. Here's Olympian Billy Mills again. I've often thought about Jim Thorpe's relationship with Pop Warner. They were trying to make as much money off the Carlisle football team, off the athletes like Jim Thorpe, etc. And that had to clash with what's the best interest of Jim. There had to be a major, major clash. People always longed for the good old days when everything was pure. And athletes weren't getting paid all this money, you know. It's completely bogus. Human nature doesn't change. The culture changes somewhat around it. But from the very start, football players were being paid in colleges. And Pop Warner was paying his athletes. So Warner was a great football coach. In another sense, um, a disreputable human being. Completely turned his back on Jim in his moment of need. They throw Thorpe under the bus. But in 1913, AAU strips Jim of his amateur status. The IOC strips Jim of his medals and awards that he won in 1912. And it wasn't until July 15th of this year, 2022, 
that the IOC reinstated those records. And here's Billy Mills. How I felt when I heard he got his medals back. I cried. I, I cried because of the significance that meant to indigenous people. Again, Malcolm Jenkins. The things he had to face as an athlete, like we look at the Muhammad Ali's and why he's, uh, we hold him up so high, not only was he a great athlete and a champion, but he had to deal with all of these other, uh, these other fights, per se, out of the ring in society and still for something else. Jim Thorpe was that same kind of beacon. It wasn't lost on Jim, nor his teammates at Carlisle, that the only person punished for what was a common practice was the Native American. He was a fall guy. I don't think you can say that it was entirely because of race, but I think it was a lot easier to blame him than to open up the whole wound of the phoniness of amateurism all around. Jim was devastated. His post-Olympic offers dried up overnight. Turning to Warner once more, Warner convinced Jim the only option was to play the more established sport of pro baseball, grabbing what money he could before it was too late. Warner graciously offered to act as Jim's representative and get him a good deal, all for a cut of Jim's salary. Pop Warner then directed Thorpe to Warner's friend, John McGraw, manager of the New York Giants. Jim got a three-year deal, reportedly worth $6,000 a year with a $500 signing bonus. Warner's cut was said to be almost half, though he denied he was feasting on his old star as he pushed him out the door. He was brought in largely as a PR tool as much as a baseball player. I mean, he appeared on the covers of programs and thousands of people more showed up to these games to see Jim Thorpe play wherever they traveled. It was a poor first season for Thorpe, who was still reeling from the Olympic scandal and struggling to hit the curve. He often quipped that his new tribal name was Benchwarmer. After being demoted to the minors, Jim quietly retired, accepting a simple job coaching football running backs at Indiana University. The money wasn't great, but at 29, Jim's playing days were through. Back in Canton, Ohio, a group of Canton businessmen decided to launch a new team called the Canton Professionals in 1911. It was really the old Bulldogs that had folded after the 1906 season under a new name. While team officials bickered about how to rebuild, their new secretary-treasurer, 21-year-old pro football superfan named Jack Cusack, knew the answer. Arrange a game the fans would care about. And that meant a matchup with the game's great agitator and greater draw, Peggy Parrott. Here's Ohio sports reporter Chris Bevan. I think in Jack Cusack, you had a guy who saw the potential of football both as a, you know entertainment and sport and, and appreciated that part of it, but also uh, as a businessman, saw an opportunity to, to make a buck. You know, Jack Cusack was that guy in Canton for a time and, and got the franchise restarted. Using some hustle, Cusack finagled a showdown with the Shelby Blues, Peggy's current team. Although Canton lost, the game did spark some excitement. So Canton's biggest fan was put in charge of the team and left to figure out how to restore it to its former Bulldog glory. In 1913, Parrott had stacked his new team, the Akron Indians, with the best college stars available and half of Notre Dame's old starting line, including the great Newt Rockne, winning another championship. 
I think all the men of that era that were running professional football teams, Parrot included, had to have a, a keen eye for a marketing edge in addition to the edge on the field so that they could get the best players and then bring in the fans and then be able to support uh, what they had going. A year later, they faced the Canton pros once more in a big matchup, with Canton finally surprising the more powerful Akron with a 6-0 upset. But the win came at a terrible price. Team captain Harry Turner had spent those years as hell-bent on beating Parrot as anyone. When Joe Collins of Akron broke free on a run, Turner caught him from behind and the two went down hard. Collins got up, but Turner didn't. Tragically, the popular team captain fractured his back. Unable to move, he was transported to a nearby bed. Legend has it Cusack was with Turner that night and always remembered the player's last words. I know I must go, but I'm satisfied, for we beat Peggy Parrott. Turner died the next day, claiming a sad record. The first official death in pro football. Here's Peyton Manning and Tony Gonzalez. It's a physical sport. It's a brutal sport. It's a violent sport. Knowing it could be over at any day. Uh, it can take away from you in an instant. It can take everything away from you with a with significant injury. There are no guarantees, but uh, I always just felt real thankful uh, and grateful to be able to play. We have to make this game as safe as we can. Here's Mike Pereira, former head of NFL officiating. Not just for NFL players, but for college players and high school players and peewee football players who basically, you know, take what the NFL does and follows in many cases what they're doing. We have to make it safer. Less than two weeks later, Parrott defeated Cusack in a rematch, taking home his fourth championship in five years. Despite all his efforts, Cusack was still second rate. Adding to his woes, Cusack, who still worked for the oil and gas company, got an ultimatum from his boss, saying it's either us or football. Cusack was still convinced professional football would catch on and wanted to be there when it happened. He quit, becoming the first full-time executive in the pro game. Cusack had no safety net now. He also faced a new challenger that was actually an old challenger. The Massillon Tigers had been resurrected by some deep-pocketed businessmen, and they were the talk of 1915 after raiding Peggy Parrott's championship team. Cusack saw the opportunity to exercise his demons and finally make his mark. He arranged a two-game rematch for the end of that season between his Canton squad and Massillon. It was all fans could talk about. Cusack even went back to the Canton Bulldogs' name to lean into the historic rivalry. But he knew he had to go big or fall short yet again. He was determined not to let that happen. But where would he find the ringer to end all ringers? That's when it happened. A light bulb moment that changed the professional game forever. Cusack realized that Jim Thorpe, older and mostly forgotten, now lived just 300 miles away in nearby Indiana. Jim jumped at the opportunity to compete again. Here's Joe Horrigan, the executive director of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Cusick signed Jim Thorpe in 1915. Well, he's either out of his mind or 
he's you know struck gold. This was a great promotional signing. He was a great athlete. And uh, when he came to Canton, uh, he was paid an outrageous salary, you know, I think it was $500 a game or something. People thought Cusack would bankrupt the team with his crazy publicity stunt. Thorpe's day had come and gone, but Cusack was convinced the world's greatest athletes still had more to give. Peyton Manning knows the feeling. There was no guarantee, certainly, and nobody could guarantee me that, you know, I'd definitely be able to return. So I still thought I could remain an effective quarterback and help a team move down the field. He also believed that fans would pay good money to see Thorpe strap on his spikes one more time, for better or for worse. He quickly grew the game so fast that uh, other teams like the Massillon Tigers, which were the real you know, uh, competition with Canton, their playing fields just simply weren't large enough to uh, handle a gate that, that Thorpe could draw. The first meeting on November 14th in Massillon drew 6,000 fans to a stadium that averaged 1,200 during the year. Despite the packed stands, Canton's coach was peeved about Thorpe's lack of fitness in practice time. He didn't start Thorpe and only played him minimally in the first game, which the Bulldogs lost 16-0. Cusack was livid and fired the coach on the spot, making Thorpe the new player coach for game two. To prepare for the rematch two weeks later on Canton's home field, Jim played his own team in 11-on-1 drills to sharpen himself up. The Bulldogs' home game took place before 8,000 cheering fans. There was so much interest and so much overflow that crowds formed in both end zones to watch the game. As a result, both Canton and Maslin agreed in advance to add a ground rule that any player who took the ball across the goal line and got lost in the crowd had to re-emerge with the ball for the goal to count. It was a tight defensive match from the start but Jim Thorpe had managed yet again to rise above the rest. His two field goals were the only points scored in three and a half quarters. But in the fourth, Maslin was finally on the march and Canton looked done. Here's Joe Buck with the crucial play call. Midway through the fourth quarter and the crowd is still on its feet as it has been all game, riveted by the chance to see the great Jim Thorpe back on the gridiron. So far, the Carlisle legend is giving Cusack and the Canton crowd exactly what they wanted, a chance to beat their hated rivals. Thorpe has paced the rushing attack and delivered the only points of the game with a couple of clutch field goals. And his booming punts have kept Maslin at bay all game. But now, with eight minutes left, Maslin is finally threatening to score. Here's the snap. Quarterback Gus Doreas drops back to pass. He looks for Newt Rockney, who was blanketed by Thorpe. But Maslin's Wendy Briggs is streaking toward the end zone on the other sideline with Charlie Smith of Canton in pursuit. The pass is away. Briggs dives across the goal line with outstretched arms and makes an incredible catch in the end zone and then disappears into the mass of fans who have crowded onto the field. I can't even see Briggs, to be honest. But wait. Canton's Charlie Smith emerges with the ball and is signaling a touchback. What the heck just happened? I can't believe it. Today was supposed to be about the return of Jim Thorpe, but instead it's chaos once again with Canton and Maslin. The refs rushed in. Briggs swore he made the catch cleanly, but insists a uniformed policeman kicked the ball out of his hands in the ensuing melee. 
Noting that policemen in Canton don't even wear uniforms, the refs were skeptical. But Briggs refused to hear logic. The refs wanted to make the right call, but with Canton and Maslin communities so close to each other, the odds were 50% of the crowd would want to kill the refs either way. The fans decided they'd seen enough and stormed the field. Between the swarming crowd and impending darkness, the final eight minutes of the game were never played. The officials said they'd post their final decision at a local hotel at 12.30 a.m., giving the refs time to flee town. Their ultimate call was to disallow the catch, per the established extra ground rule. But because of the controversy, neither team was crowned Ohio League champion that year, just as was the case back in 1906. As for the phantom policeman, Cusack claimed to have solved the mystery years later when he ran into a streetcar conductor who said he was the one who kicked the ball out of Briggs's hands. He did so to protect a $30 bet, or two weeks' worth of his wages. Briggs mistook the brass buttons on the conductor's uniform for the coat of a copper. Once again, Anton Maslin's finale had ended in controversy. But this time, the fans didn't care. They had witnessed something special. A great star was back. A rivalry was back, too. Thorpe had returned to the game he loved, reminding everyone why it was worth watching. And the writing was on the wall for those who wished to read it. A new era of professional football was about to begin, and wherever Thorpe played, attendance, revenue, and credibility would follow. Here's Aaron Rodgers. In any sport, any league, you need superstars, and we've been blessed a number of superstar athletes who are either widely uh, beloved or infamous, polarizing, and I think you need some of that. You need people you really love to cheer for and you need those people you love to cheer against because either way it's drawn viewers to the game and some great players who've carried on the legacy of our sport. This is Washington Post journalist and author Sally Jenkins. If you could bring Jim Thorpe forward in a time machine, I guarantee you he'd be the greatest star in the game today. He's the greatest athlete in American history, no question. Jim Thorpe was almost forgotten, only to prove himself yet again a true football legend. As both player and coach, Thorpe led the Bulldogs to the Ohio League Championship in 1916 and 1917, losing just one game in two seasons, playing for larger and larger crowds along the way. After a lackluster decade, the pro game had arrived on the coattails of a Native American descended from one of his tribe's greatest warriors. Football had found its bright path forward with Wathoha, the world's greatest athlete. Nothing could stop the sport's forward momentum now, at least on the field. Off of it, the business of football was still in total disarray. It needed someone to bring order to the chaos and get a collection of hustlers, ringers, money men, and newly minted stars all on the same page. The circus that was football needed its ringleader. 